Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who make us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. My guest this week is Gemma Sawyer, who is the creator, founder and CEO of ILO, the UK's first sexual health and pleasure product brand that is designed by women for women. Gemma founded ILO in 2020 with the intent on being solutions focused. By this, she means that the products are designed to find a solution. For example, a solution to the usual pleasure products being something you might hide away in a drawer. Instead, ILO products are beautiful objects that look like mini sculptures or one of ILO's products called the O-Nut. It's solution focused in that it's designed for individuals who might find penetrative sex painful, for example. ILO also have sustainable menstrual products, finding a solution to the excess waste created from tampon applicators or unsustainable period products. I was keen to interview Gemma because I think what she's doing with ILO is a radical act of post-human practice. ILO is firstly centered on the female body, its reproductive system and sexual pleasure. Philosophers in post-human theory and gender studies point out that women's voices have been lost in history. Within humanist philosophy, the human subject was the male-bodied subject. It's evident in the language used as they philosophize about the consciousness of man and the role of man as a human in society. Da Vinci's famous painting of the Vitruvian Man was the manifestation of Protagoras' statement during Classicism, which was, man is the measure of all things. It was meant to be a statement about truth, but this statement also meant that man became the model of the human against which all else is compared. I'm aware I'm going a bit deep into the philosophy here, but some people would argue that by man, Protagoras meant human. But humans, active people in society who had thoughts, discussions and made things, were men during that time. And in fact, women, or woman, and her body were discussed very separately from the man's, if at all. So woman and any others that didn't fit the ideal model of the human were automatically positioned as non-human by default. Philosophy and history more generally has largely been about men and man's achievements. The role of the woman in society has only more recently been properly explored within philosophical thinking. Lucy Irigaray and Helena Sisu point out that within all books and literature historically, the female subject what she thinks, how she feels, is missing. So Irigaray wrote about the concept of the woman as subject, which hadn't actually been defined at all, and definitely not by a woman. So woman as subject would include woman as subject of society, as well as woman as subject of desire. Again, within sex, the female body and female pleasure has historically been a secondary after the pleasure of man, if at all. <laughs> the woman's pleasure and desire often wasn't taken into account at all. On top of that, women's reproductive capabilities has meant that she has been object of the scientific and medical gaze. Due to the biological female body's reproductive capacity, she has been paired with nature in the humanist binary scheme of thinking. It's this binary scheme of thinking that post-human philosophy works against, actively works against. This scheme of thinking is entrenched within language and how bodies have been categorised. Mind and body, and male and female, 
Those are obvious binaries that dictate how humans have been discussed. But the binary also pairs man with culture and woman with nature. Through culture, man is connected to politics, social policy, new developments, and also technology. The fact that the maternal body morphs and grows during pregnancy and also bleeds monthly has meant that the female body and its messy unpredictability was seen as a part of the natural world. One thing that really interested me about what Gemma is doing with ILO is this merging of the female body with technology. The designers of the carefully designed products have used technology to create items that blend with the female body. Harnessing technology is a really powerful feminist act. In her Cyborg Manifesto, Donna Haraway encourages women to seize technology. She says women should use it and code it in ways that work for them, as this new powerful tool can be used to make radical change that can break previous oppressive systems. The pleasure products produced by ILO can, of course, be used by non-biological women or within non-heteronormative relationships, for example. And this is something that Gemma and I speak about in the interview. But due to her own experience of being a woman, seeing issues within the sex product market, and also experiencing endometriosis, has meant that Gemma has been focused on the experience of the female body in her mission. Endometriosis is a condition where tissue, similar to the lining of the womb, grows in other places, such as the ovaries or the fallopian tubes, but some women even have it growing in their lungs or on other organs. Famously, it can take up to a decade for some women to be diagnosed with this condition. Whilst they experience immense pain and discomfort, this often gets dismissed as normal period pains. From talking to Gemma, I could see how creating ILO has been a way for her to reclaim some independence over her body and her life. In this episode, we talk about setting up ILO, the products it provides, female pleasure, ownership of the body, women in business, egg freezing, and the pressure women feel to reproduce. We also talk about the power of harnessing technology. I loved chatting with Gemma about these topics and her plans for the future of ILO. I hope you enjoy listening. Gemma, thank you so much for coming on Bodies in the Post. It's a real pleasure to have you here. You are the creator, founder and CEO of ILO, which is the UK's first company that provides sexual health and well-being products designed by women for women. And so you have a range of pleasure products and sustainable menstrual products, which is really kind of filling a gap in the market, isn't it? Because ILO is doing really well at the moment. And I feel like you're getting a lot of press and there's a lot of attention. It's a really exciting time to be in the market of what you're doing. It is. It is. It's been it's been exciting since I launched in November 2020. There's lots of growth in the space. There's lots of conversations happening in the space. There's a real spotlight, I think, on the subject matter, whether it's pleasure or making more conscious choices in the products that we're using that sit in our bodies or on our bodies or we use on our bodies. So it's a really exciting time, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you set up ILO, how you first started thinking about doing it and putting things into place. Yeah, I think it was really look as a, as a consumer and not really feeling catered for. So I think I start thinking about the project and thinking about that area of the industry. It was probably about 2019, 2018, 2019, I think. 
and not really feeling catered for. There's amazing kind of long-standing stores on the British High Street that have really paved the way for buying our products. And then obviously a lot of people are buying their products online. Such as, are you allowed to name your competitors? Oh, God, yeah, 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 of course, Amazon's the biggest one. Amazon is. Amazon. Yeah, Amazon Amazon are a massive one, of course. And, you know, Anne Summers has been a main staple on the British High Street for many years and have really paved the way. I really remember there being a time, I'll show my age now, but when I was, I'd say mid-teen, and there was that period of time where Anne Summers were doing those kind of house parties. Yeah where they'd come round and, and for like a women's group and yeah. would kind of, what would you call it, sort of display the products and they'd test yeah, out the yeah, products. Like, yeah, like and a product party. Like product like party, party, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah I really remember yeah. that. And I remember Anne Summers being this really kind of risque shop but was really, it felt very much about female empowerment. Yeah, yeah, what they've done, I think Anne Summers have been around since 1970 and oh. there's still a lot of the British High Street is obviously in decline a lot at the moment so they might have, had some store closures but yeah that side of you know there being an Anne Summers representative and taking the product into the home and it was I don't remember my mum ever having one I don't think but I was very aware of like friends mums and things having them there was a sort of naughtiness around it uh, all, yeah there was there? A, yeah it was a pretty bit like wine and snacks it was yeah, you know a lot of, of giggling and like yeah. holding vibrators on your nose to sort yes. of test them out yeah yeah, yeah. and just <laughs> this is what that. I hear anyway of course well yeah yeah I've never never been to one myself but so it, you know it is almost the case kind of they've walked on the British high street so we can run I do feel that way about them but I think sexuality has changed and I think women's relationship with their own pleasure has is changing and has changed so the way that, I've, that I kind of reason with it in my mind is we don't only go to one store to buy our clothes so why is there just this one you know mainly this kind of one store available yeah there's space isn't there yeah for, 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 more. for, for more yeah there, there is space for more but then also you know some of the it's yeah back to the, the kind of clothing analogy I didn't really feel catered for in those spaces they do feel quite you know with kind of costumes and things and role play which people really get along with it's a really kind of popular expression of sexuality but what about me what about kind of my pleasure on my own I'm I'm dressing up for myself and I'm not dressing up as a you know as a French maid for myself (laughs) for myself really and then some of the products as well something that I've really tried to look at with Ilo is that the products can just live on your bedside table or they could be on the side of your bath they're not those kind of phallic like pink sparkly dark hued colors that we do feel that bit of association with shame because they might have been the first products that we've been in touch with as we've kind of growing up yeah and there's been a real movement within the types of products that are available and it's that movement that I'm interested in in changing that association with the products and where they live that's something that's really important. So where they well. live in the home. And actually, I was going to say that when we were just talking about Anne Summers in that there's space for other companies in that ILO is completely and utterly different in terms of aesthetic and appearance. It's got this very kind of minimal, sleek, sculptural appearance mm. of the products. And mm. that feels really key to what you're doing as well in that there's not a kind of grotesqueness about them, which sounds like... I don't want to shame or, or yeah, slut shame the yeah. previous yeah. the previous products that have been so popular. And yeah. I mean, God bless them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it's a very different look. And, and that's what you're getting at, I think, in that there's different people to cater for. Yeah. 
and that sense of shame. Why do you think that? Why do you think people feel that shame about those kind of products, the sort of glitzy, twinkly, sparkly, the vibrating rabbits? And yeah, yeah, I think shame is ingrained in us from a really early age. And again, an analogy I often go to is when you know sometimes when you're younger and older, relative will tell you to close your legs as a female. But mm. I've got a brother, and he's never been told that. So that sense of our bodies and having that and hiding the thing that's between your legs I think I think that comes into it quite early and then you know maybe our first associations as teenagers would be either finding a parent a parent sex toy if they use them or that that sort of experimentation of a girl in the year group going well I'm going to go to Ann Summers and I'm going to buy something and it all feeling very giggly and very hidden and something that you know you'd need to hide the box you might feel embarrassed about walking around town for the rest of the day with the bag then you've got to hide the product then you've got to dispose of the box and then you know there's perhaps just not been spoken about that much the conversation's kind of not been there or or the conversation has it does does feel like there's a kind of there's a certain element of taboo and about seediness as well. There seems to be an element of seedy in there. Mm. Not quite sure what the kind of associations with that are, but it does, there's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a sort of slant that, oh, you, you know, you get your pleasure from a battery operated device as if, you know, you should be able to go out there and get a partner that can satisfy you in that way. There's something, I haven't quite worked that out in my brain, Mm. I don't think, but there's something in there whether it's the taboo, whether it's the shame, whether it's, you know, these products up until quite recently have all looked the same. So is it a lack of choice and our association with that old fashioned shame that's that's maintained that that those feelings towards those products have have maintained? Mm. God, there's so much psychological stuff that will come into that. And I guess as well, it'll be really different in like different countries. Yeah. I would imagine, for example, in Muslim countries and in countries where a lot of women might experience female genital mutilation. Yeah that this conversation would never happen and that these products would never be available because female pleasure is literally cut off, like metaphorically and physically. And so, I mean, I think we sometimes underestimate how we live in a country where we can talk about this, for one, but I think we sometimes underestimate how powerful it is because in many countries still to this day, it's just a completely unacceptable topic. Yeah. And beyond women not being kind of able to explore their own bodies or understand their own sexual pleasure, they are not allowed to, you know, kind of almost by law. And there's a real shame that comes with that in, in, you know, I think particularly when it's concerned with religion. Yeah. But before we go too deep on that, (laughs) I wanted to ask, you saw this gap in the market of like why you wanted to set it up. And this is what I'm kind of fascinated about. So how did you go from this thought and this idea and this realisation that there's a gap Mm -hmm. to suddenly being like, I'm going to do something about it? And what were the kind of motions that you put in place and... How involved are you in the designing of the products, mm-hmm. for example? So we're a marketplace, so we don't design any of the products. So we stock products from brands around the world. But that was almost an accident. It had never occurred to me that the majority of pleasure products will be designed by men and will the companies will be owned by the, the CEOs and the founders will be male. So it was an accident that when I was looking to get ILO off the ground and was looking for products and trying to find my way with it, that was digging into backstories of products and realising that they were designed by women. The majority of the products that we stock are solutions focused. So, What does that mean, um, solutions focused? So if I can speak about the product, so we stock a brand called Onut and that product has been devised, created, crowdfunded by a lady that has endometriosis, so suffers from pain during penetration. 
which they've never, I have endometriosis, they've never quite gotten to the bottom of any of it, let alone why you experience painful sex. Is that really common then with endometriosis that you experience pain during sex? Yeah, it can be. I Fortunately, I don't suffer from it. I haven't so far. I'm sure it's in the post as my endometriosis um, journey goes on. I'm touching um, <laughs> Isn't that That'll be a pun and a half. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what Emily, the creator of the product, did, I've never actually met her in person, but I've listened to kind of podcasts and things that she's done, was put a donut. She was kind of messing around with her boyfriend and put a donut over his penis to... A real control, donut. Yeah, a, yeah, like a sugar ring donut to, to see if controlling the depth of penetration might change her experience and that was the real start of her product so the owner isn't the owner product isn't sugar-coated but it's a really tactile medical grade silicone that's really stretchy so it forms part of the body they come in a set of four and and they've got like this really clever like lip on them so you can stack them they fit into each other and they're like in a ring like the donut was that sort of goes onto the penis yeah 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 so you could put it with a penetrative partner or you can use it on a sex toy as well well, on a pleasure product I as well, see. a penetrative pleasure product as well. And the idea um, is to create a kind of gap almost. It's a buffer. Yeah, they right. call, yeah, it's called a buffer ring so that penetration is still there, but the depth of penetration can be altered. And it's yeah, it, what an amazing solution, you know, with a problem that somebody has experienced that they've dug into it. And, you know, not just thought, well, penetrative sex is something that I can't do because I have this problem with it. So we stock a number of different brands. So each of these brands to get their product and their brands off the ground, they've then crowdfunded them. Yeah. So we stock a vibrating necklace that was due to be the first ever crowdfunded sex toy. But it was pulled for like pornographic purposes the night before the campaign was pulled the no night before. Way. So T, who's designed that product, it didn't go through in that way. And then we stock a, a brand called Dame Products. And the two founders of that realised that their office was near to the, I don't think it was Kickstarter, I can't remember the name of the other one, the really popular one. They realised that their office was near to the office of the crowdfunding company. And they went and knocked on the door and said, look, we've got this product, we want it to go. And so they actually got the first product and we and we stock that one as well oh wow so so, so what is dame dame is founded by a sexologist and an engineer and the rationale between the solution that they're trying to tackle is the pleasure gap and the orgasm gap and those kind of statistics that vaginal orgasms are a lot less common than we think i think it's only something like depending on the statistic that you look at it's about 20 to 30 percent of women can that can and i think through the media you think that it should happen all of the time. And if we're not having the conversations to say, well, actually, I don't orgasm when somebody's inside me or something's inside me, so what? But if we're not having those conversations... It takes, so, yeah, so yeah, it takes more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, clitoral orgasms are, are much more common. But not um, but not shown in not, porn, for not example. Sh- yeah, yeah, not really shown in, in porn a great deal. Very little attention is paid to the clitoris in porn. Yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a fa- But even in TV and film as well, there's a fabulous an Instagram account, which... I can't remember the name of, but it celebrates TV and film where it's it's called the clit something, but it celebrates TV and film where the camera angle is showing that and clitoral orgasms and attention is shown to that area that it's not just assumed that people can have um, mm. vaginal orgasms. So, so yeah, so that's so that looking at the pleasure gap, that's why they've started their company and they just do amazing things. They're based in New York as well, but most of the brands that are in the UK and T that's designed the necklace, I kind of have a nice chat with them, which oh. is, is something that I didn't expect as well. I thought, well, you know, I'll buy the product in and I'll sell it and I'll buy some more. But T, who designed the vibrator necklace, she, what the night I launched, 
launched and I tagged her in. She was the first person to slide into my DMs and say how amazing <laughs> she found Ilo as a platform. Uh, um, and she was really pleased. So, yeah, she's been super supportive. That's so great. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. Because we're talking about sex, I feel like everything's a bit of a euphemism or a oh, podcast. Can be, yeah. Sliding into the DMs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely can be. It takes so much initiative and bravery, I think, as well, to be like, I'm going to do something about this. And I know that you experienced, you, you mentioned endometriosis and how much that affected you and your sense of identity and your relationship with your body. Mm. And was that quite a big factor in terms of you setting up ILO? Did that influence that quite a lot? I think it's, it's, all, it's always in the mind. It's a daily, I don't know if you call it a disease, it's, a daily, it's something that's there daily, the kind of awareness of it daily, whether yeah. it's pain or some um, endometriosis sufferers suffer from pain every single day. And actually, for those who might not know what it is, mm. would you mind describing it? Um, so it is? endometriosis is when the lining of the womb grows in other parts of the body. So it can be found anywhere, basically. The, anywhere inside the body. Anywhere inside the body, basically. So from surgeries that I've had, I think I've got some of the tissues on my bowel. It's on my bladder. I think I've got some on my kidneys. Wow. My nan had endometriosis. Hers travelled to her lungs. It can be found kind of kind of anywhere in the body. They don't know why. I've been working with a nutritionist recently who is looking into the studies that it's an autoimmune disease because there must be something wrong with the immune system that lets it grow there, that lets the endometrium travel there and grow there. But there's so little research into it. The diagnosis is typically seven to ten years, or probably a bit longer after the pandemic seven as well. Seven to ten years. Yeah. So I actually have yeah. a friend who she'd done enough research on her own. It was pre-pandemic, just pre-pandemic. And she'd done enough research to realise she was like, I'm 90% sure this is what I have, if not more. And she had all of the symptoms. She had incredible pain. It was affecting her work, her mm. social life, everything, her relationship. And she kept going to the doctor saying, look, I think I've got endometriosis. And it still took maybe four or five visits to the doctor yeah. and quite a lot of kicking and shouting. Yeah. And they just, I don't know, what do you think the problem is? Why, why aren't people, why is it taking so long to get proper diagnosis? I really don't know. This I almost count myself lucky that my diagnosis was quite quick, but it was only quick because I had visible large cysts on both of my ovaries when I got a scan. But it was, I remember kind of months and months of going back to the doctors and not even being referred for the scan. And they would have just passed me off with more painkillers that didn't work, didn't touch it. It's just a bad period. It's just what people that experience periods go mm. through, just go away and get on with it. And there's a lot of doctors. I mean, things are changing now, obviously, and there's a lot more female doctors coming through than there were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But a lot of the time, historically, it's been a lot of male doctors who've it's, been diagnosing. Sadly, people. I've been fobbed off by female doctors as well. I'd really? love to say that that wasn't the case, whether it's a time thing, whether it's expensive to refer you for a scan. The laparoscopy that you need to have to, to diagnose endometriosis is probably quite expensive. And do you think that some of them are just like, ah, you've just got a bad period? It's just it a bad together. period. It's just a bad period. Off you go. It's, it must be it's, so frustrating when it's yeah, that debilitating, yeah, that pain yeah. that you experienced, that you've talked about elsewhere as well. Yeah. I think it's super helpful that, you're, that you talk about this really publicly because the more people can know about it. The reason my friend realised that she had it was because of other people talking about it and yeah. doing research online. Yeah. So I think it's so good that you talk about it in this way. Yeah, it just sounds like 
it was so debilitating for you and, yeah. and continues to be as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Before I'd had the cysts removed, I'd pass out with pain and it would come from nowhere and I could track my periods and I, I it was like passing out and then... You'd, like, you'd actually passed out? I did pass one evening, I did pass out. I woke up and thought I'd been attacked. I thought I'd been kicked really hard in the stomach and in the back and I couldn't stand up, I couldn't lie down, I didn't know whether I needed to vomit or run to the toilet and I didn't quite know what that was and this the sort of like the sweats that break out around the neck as well that from I, the pain yeah that I experienced and I just must have passed out quite briefly just my, so my body just reacting to the pain but then I think a couple of months later I the pain came from nowhere and I was cycling in quite a busy intersection in Vauxhall and the pain came and I just about managed to kind of write myself to the to the side of the road to go, you know, this is happening again. Wow, Awful. that's so dangerous. Yeah. It wasn't like my periods were getting progressively worse. It's like one month wow. this thing happened, yeah. Wow, yeah. and you said you've had lots of surgeries now. I've only had one. I've had one. I'm due another one this year because I'm experiencing pain a bit more and it's been seven or eight years since the first surgery that I had. So, But I've had like phone consultations with surgeons recently and the questions were like, do you want surgery? I was like, well... You know, I've just had an MRI, you've got my results. I said, well, no, I don't. I'm really scared of hospitals. I don't want surgery. Well, no one wants it. Like, Are you telling me I've got to have it? Or are you asking me whether I want to? I don't understand this. Yeah. I don't know. You tell me whether you're looking at my results and think it would be beneficial for you to put me under again and do this again. Because I'm not, I don't know what I'm looking at. And they're saying, when I go for consultations and things, they're saying words that I don't understand. I'm not. Just, and you're in such a state when you're in there, I don't always remember them either. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I've sometimes been in hospital appointments where I've even said to them, do you mind if I record this conversation? Yeah. Because you're so overwhelmed with information in that moment. You can't Google the stuff they're saying yeah. in that moment. Yeah. But then you forget what they said, you know, some of the words or terms. I also feel like I'm always wasting their time because they're in such a hurry and that's yeah. not their fault. I understand particularly now that NHS is like completely swamped and mm. overwhelmed and, you know, they're completely rushed off their feet. Yeah. But a few appointments I've had where I just feel like they're really trying to get me out the door and yeah. I'm like, but hang on, can you just explain what you mean by this? And yeah, it's really difficult word yeah. that you've been in medical school for however well, exactly, long Well, yeah, it's like the Latin yeah. root of a word yeah, or something yeah. to do with yeah. something. Yeah. But they said no, and I completely get that. Oh, they didn't say it like that. They said no, you can't record. And, you know, people say you should take someone with you to an appointment, yeah. but it's like, who am I going to... Everyone works. Everyone's yeah. at work. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to... I mean, I could. Obviously, there'd be people who would do that for me, but I, yeah. I don't really want to ask them to do that. So with having a long-term gynecological issue and the amount of kind of tests and prodding and poking that's really invasive it's really invasive and the amount of times when you just have to when you have to really de like detach from your body in order to kind of get through it there's something it's really unpleasant those kind of examinations and things are never pleasant for anybody but that ownership of body and the kind of ownership of self there is there's something in there as well where when you're getting home and you've had an external examination and how do you kind of reconnect with your body and start for, start to make it feel like yours again? Yeah, the use of some nice products might help that. Yeah, that. and yeah. it's so true. I think it can feel really scary. I can't imagine having to do it on that kind of frequency and feeling out of control with your body mm. like that. It must mm -hmm. be so difficult. Yeah. But even kind of regular checkups when you have to go and it feels, even though you know in your head, like, my grown woman, this is for a, a doctor's appointment yeah. and, you know, no one's doing anything without my consent. Yeah. But it still feels really intrusive yeah. and violating. Yeah. And I always yeah. feel like quite vulnerable afterwards. Gotcha. I feel yeah. really kind of like I'm on the verge of tears. Yeah. You know, I need to go and 
buy myself a nice chocolate bar. Yeah, and... yeah. So having to do that frequently, and I'm guessing from quite a youngish age. Not that young, actually. I think I would have, if I was younger, I would have really struggled. I think I would have been early to mid thirties. I was quite late in my symptoms. Yeah, I was quite late. And you said your mum had it as well. My nan had it. Your yeah, nan had it. yeah. And we, I've seen some doctors that have said it's familial, and I've seen some that said it absolutely isn't. Nobody knows. My mum had my brother and I. She had my brother when she was twenty, so she was a lot younger. My nan went through the menopause when she was the age that I got diagnosed. So th- I think about 33, 34. But my oh, wow. mum, yeah, really young. And my that was mom. linked to the endometriosis? Yeah, she had yeah, she had endometriosis. That would have been the 60s. So even less research and even less understanding than there is now. But my mum had my brother when she was 20 and they wonder if the, because one of the main, what they think is a treatment for endometriosis is to tell you to go and have a child and think that that'll get all of that out of your body. And there's no studies that show that it does, but we wonder if because my mum had my brother quite young, all at 20, that that might, you know, had she been due to inherit it from my nan, that, that, that an early child would Oh, have. I see. Mm. But there's no research to support that? There's nothing conclusive, no. I've seen different doctors that have said different things. Have they said that to you before? Go and have a kid and it might help. Yeah, yeah. I've been told to kind of hurry up. Yeah, which is... Really difficult to hear because yeah. you might not want to have a kid yeah. and you might not be anywhere near that yeah. place in life anyway. Yeah. So it's, yeah. The, all those routes. I'm single and then all the routes you have to go down of, well, you know, let's talk about egg freezing and you're going to, you know, fund all of that yourself and then you have to pay rent on the eggs and it's all it all goes sitting there on your own and I've been to sort of appointments for that and you go to check in and the first question, is your partner here? That assumption that you've got a partner, it's really, you know, That's really emotionally, hard. it's like being slapped. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Hard, yeah. So you've gone through that process of egg freezing. No, I haven't. It's a lot of money. I just didn't do it. I think I'll probably come to regret that, but I just didn't do it. I could still, apparently they are still viable in there, but it just feels like a massive decision to, to make on my own that there's no there's no guarantee anything's going to ever happen with those eggs. So it's quite difficult. Yeah, yeah really yeah. difficult yeah. and a real expense. Yeah. Financially and emotionally, yeah. and also it puts your body through a lot. Yeah, yeah, it does. Friends of mine that have had it, it's quite common now. People are really speaking about it, and I really enjoy those conversations with people and really understanding why they've done it and what they've experienced when they've gone through it. I've had some friends that have had it done that said they found it fine. They just experienced the sorts of hormones that they had when they're in their monthly cycle. And then, yeah, some just saying it just completely wiped them out. And I, I kind of spoke to the nurse and said, I am very, very medically phobic about everything from the dentist to everything. And and I, I sort of said, to, I've got a really lovely endometriosis nurse. And I said, I really don't think personally I could go through it. I think you have to inject yourself and all of that. And she said, I think you could. I think you're strong enough. But I, yeah, I started the appointments in lockdown and then I think all of the that team, because it's classed, it's elective, I think they do class egg freezing as luxury. So all of those staff were all, is it called seconded where you get put in another department to deal with, or you get taken from one of your departments. And, right. And yeah, I'd sort of just trailed off the trailed off the communication, but I'm oh, probably going to regret that. Yeah, yeah. It's such a massive and mammoth decision actually to go through. I mean, it's not to be underestimated. And like you say, making these huge decisions on your own mm. about, you know, do I want to have a baby and what will that involve mm. and spending a whole load of money before you even potentially have success with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. When women have children, they do it on their own. I think it's a really incredible thing. But when you've got a chronic illness and thinking that you might be about to bring a child into the world when you're not that well all the time, that's a, that's a mega one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes. And take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. Thinking about those kind of technologies of reproduction and sort of stuff we've touched on here as well in terms of like invasive procedures and how the way that technology is involved in medicine, but also involved with particularly the female body because it's tied to reproduction. Yeah. And this idea that like the female body historically has been paired with nature because of childbirth and because we bleed and our bodies morph Mm. during pregnancy and then Mm. we give birth to a new life. So kind of throughout history and philosophy, women's bodies have been very much paired with nature. Mm. And it was kind of, I think, during like post-modernity when philosophers started seeing more interaction between the body and technology. And I think that quite a few feminists started to seize that and be like, well, you know, this is something new. Technology is something new that we can take hold of and harness. And it can be something that we can use, not against the patriarchy, but to kind of break the patriarchy and to empower ourselves. And I feel like your use of technology with ILO, as well as the kind of personal experiences you've had and these technologies of reproduction that we've sort of touched on, they're kind of connected in the sense that, Ilo, you've harnessed technology and these new technologies to create this company, which is about female empowerment and the kind of non-tangible empowerment and liberation of women through things that are tangible and touchable, like through these products that you can actually hold. Yeah. You can create this sort of empowering, liberatory presence. Yeah. And it just feels to me like there's technology is really enveloped in what you're doing. Yeah. Even though the products themselves don't look technological, they look really sort of simple and sculptural. But how comfortable and like connected are you with technology? Is it something that you find easy to handle? And was setting up your company through technology something that you embraced quite easily? It's something it's something I've had to learn. So yeah, running the back end of a of an e-commerce shop while I can navigate lots of different websites and lots of different things, the setting up of the website and doing the little bits of changes that I need to kind of make sometimes on a daily basis to things was yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't even think I've completely mastered it now. But yeah, it's that's, the website is very slick, I have to thank say. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you. I have just had a female designer in Barcelona redo my homepage, which has been great. But yeah, yeah, it has been. And then I do like pop up events. So I go and sell live as much as possible. So then the setting up of the like terminals and stuff to, to be able to sell things live, which was relatively simple, but then managing the stock levels across two different platforms and things. And yeah, now I know it's probably quite simple, but I was quite scared of the of, of the technology. Yeah, yeah. Of starting, yeah, and think and I guess scared of scared of making mistakes or of getting it wrong. And, yeah. Yeah. So Donna Haraway, who she wrote the cyborg manifesto. And she talks about the cyborg being like a metaphorical idea. So mm. it's not a kind of literal cyborg, but this kind of metaphorical future body that is devoid of racism and sexism because it's not human in that sense. Yeah. So it's taken away from discriminatory practices. Yeah. And she talked about the cyborg and it became this really kind of key figure in feminist socialist theory. Yeah. And she taught, I think the subheading of her manifesto, the Cyborg Manifesto, is the reinvention of nature. So she was talking very much about this separation of the female body from nature. Right. And the fact that technology is something new that feminists can harness in a liberatory way. And she wrote that in the 80s, early 80s. And I feel like, I mean, a lot of philosophers have said that, unfortunately, her idea of the cyborg being a post-gendered body didn't come into fruition. Because if you think about the 80s with 
films during the 80s of like The Terminator and Robocop. And I mean, cyborg imagery got really heavily gendered. So it didn't like fulfill her idea, sadly. But I feel like now, more recently, in I'd say in the last sort of 20 or 30 years since the noughties, there seems to be more of a a different way or a different angle of looking at the cyborg. And I feel like ILO connects to what the cyborg actually is in the sense that it is about female empowerment. Yeah. And it is about women using technology in a way that is empowering with the female body. Yeah. So I feel yeah. like in a weird way, that is more of a kind of post-gendered cyborg in a sense. Like yeah. it's not post-gender because it's very much about the female body. Yeah. But I feel like the power of what you're doing and the way that you're using technology and creating this female space, female yeah. run, female yeah. designed is the essence of what Donna Haraway was trying to get at in terms of, she even said, I think, in her book, like technology is something that feminists must seize and must code and must use with the body. Yeah. And I feel like that's exactly what you're doing with ILO. Yeah, really interesting. I like the lines that you're drawing. Yeah. (laughs) Post-human lines and stuff about the body. I mean, I do see your company, and that's why I was so keen to interview you, is that what you're doing is very post-human. It's very kind of post-human feminist and... The people that you paired up with and got involved in your company, is everyone female? Yes, pre- yeah, pretty much the creative direction. So I was very keen that ILO would look like a lifestyle brand and not like a sex toy brand, not look like a sex brand. So I've worked with a male friend who works with a lot of lifestyle brands to really harness that. He worked with a female within, within his team. I don't know what the split was of the creation of the branding. But other than that, yeah, everybody else that I work with and even going out to find somebody to work with for the redesign of the homepage. I used a platform where you put a pitch out and then people then respond to your pitch and say what they'd do. And I think six people got back to me and it was one that was female and I preferred her work from everybody else's work. Yeah, I just I wanted to, to work with to work with someone that understood understood lifestyle yeah. brands and understood yeah coming from that from that place really and understood the the female body and the role yeah. of sex products yeah. or pleasure products yeah pleasure products in the lifestyle space so yeah she's worked a lot with them lifestyle branding mm. yeah. yeah so it's different and how many are you on on the team now these the people that you're working with the females still just me <laughs> oh wow yeah, but the yeah. people that you kind of reach out to are they freelancers that you hire then? yes yeah that's right yeah so I come from an educational background I still work in higher education so I have graduates um, I've employed some of my graduates to work with me that have been fantastic and graduates studying a fashion promotion yes yeah, so I've used my fashion promotion graduates and how have they been involved in it I've had a fantastic ex-student called Kieran who had taken her fashion promotion degree and gone into graphic design so Kieran worked a lot on that, how the early social media posts work. I, I knew I wanted the social media to look a certain way. So Kieran's been able to do that. And then she does a lot of, if I need things like kind of points of sale designing and stuff like that, Kieran absolutely knows. Her aesthetic is incredible and she absolutely gets the brand. I've worked with some students to design things like social media strategy as well. And so to look at how the socials are performing. I've been in a number of like mentorship schemes and it's been very important to me to have had female mentors as well from the sector and some from outside from outside the sector as well. But I think I probably struggle to advice from a male about my brand. And I'm going to be going out for investment this year as well. And I would like to have a board of female investors. And I can totally see why in many senses because of the female body and understanding the female body and all of the things we talked about. 
Would you say as well there's a space for trans or non-binary or male-bodied people? The kind of trans non-binary space, do you feel like that's a space that you're operating in already or something that you could in the future? I think most definitely in, in the future we are using quite gendered language at the moment. I think once I've kind of found my way a little bit more with the brand then there's probably there's more scope I think within our brand messaging to open that out I think. But with the, I own all of our stock and all of our, st- all of the ILO stock lives in my flat. So it's me doing all the kind of picking and packing and walking to the post office and doing all of that. So wow. looking at the back end of our website, and if I'm going off, I guess, gendered names, which doesn't, which doesn't really mean anything, we are sending to male sounding names and particularly in the owner as well. Ah, okay. so, so yeah, a lot of our, a lot of our traffic comes from search not necessarily people knowing directly and knowing what they want. So if people comes are search- from search. Yeah, if, yeah, if people are searching if people are searching the owner then they're likely to, to come across as a selling it. So I guess as well, because being a female and female bodied cis woman, you're operating from the space that this has come from, like you said, it's like you felt that there was a gap in the market that you that you weren't connecting with and you've created yeah. something that you connect with on a deep level. And I guess when ILO gets more financial support and can expand in that sense that you could maybe hire someone who is trans or non-binary to come in and, and talk about their experience and what they need so yeah. rather than you speaking for them or... yeah yeah that's that's absolutely right you know it's it, if I would like to if we were ever to kind of move into that space it would be one of my goals to perhaps create a bursary for somebody that's trans and studying product design perhaps so that they would have the space to explore pleasure products in more depth than I would have the capacity to and yeah you're right Ilo is very personal I wouldn't wish to speak for other people and I'm also I really strongly believe that there will be a platform set up somebody will do ILO and it will just be for the trans bodies and I'd love to kind of to be a supporter of that I, in terms of product I don't know how much is available on the market but there will be more I do sort of kind of dig into Kickstarter every now and then and see what sorts of products are going to be on the market I am seeing a lot more a lot more products for, for trans bodies so, so mm. there, there will be a marketplace soon yeah it's just for it's just for trans and i guess as well the products that you do have could be used by trans or non-binary people anyway it's just that you're not necessarily your marketing at the moment is more female bodied i wonder as well if the male buyers are buying the products the male names you mentioned Mm. when you look at the search Mm. are buying for their partners yeah and they're kind of looking for something stylish as well as sexy you know I just wanted to talk as well briefly about the design itself and how you would describe that for anyone who isn't familiar with ILO products. I've curated all of the products that are available on ILO. They are more sculptural. They're a lot sleeker and it it comes in the branding and in the sorts of packaging as well. They look like Apple products. They're more that Mm. ilk than something that's taboo. That sort of simple simplicity, yeah, smooth lines. Yeah, really simple, sm- smooth lines. There is the consideration for things like medical grade silicone, so things that are body safe as well, not using materials that are porous that can harbour things like STIs and some materials. 
that can keep infection and things oh, in I them. See. They're all long-lasting products as well, so they're you know a bit more than the sort of than the cheaper items that are available in mass market retailers. But that's to make them last longer, so they're around for longer, so they're not damaging the. They don't need to be thrown out more, and they're not damaging the. Right, and actually that links to your. You've got some period products which are sustainable. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so the three products that we've got. So we've got a menstrual cup that's been designed by a mother and daughter duo and there's certain design elements of that. The menstrual cup has been on the market for a while, but there's certain design elements that they've taken, things like the removal of the cup and what some menstruators have experienced where they've been removing the cup or the, I think, so the upper out the 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 outer, rim the rim that's the word I'm looking for the <laughs> rim can be quite tough I've never I've, what as I in when it's inside it can yeah, feel uncomfortable yeah yeah okay. can, so that that supple that supple element and they've designed a thing called a pebble which for the ease of pulling the menstrual cup out as well we've got a washable period pad product that is good for post birth and it's good for women that suffer with pelvic problems as well so things like leaking so that's another product that we stock and then we stock two brands both called Dame that's the reusable tampon applicator so that you're not throwing applicators even if they're paper kind of into waste so it's got a little kind of cap on it so if you're in a bathroom stall that hasn't got a sink in it you just pop the cap on and just deal with the washing of it later so yeah it's a really great product as well and again that was a crowdfunded product that they've got off the market and they're doing they're doing really great things you might have seen some of their advertising on buses on bus stops recently they ran a scheme I think a couple of summers ago where they did it was, I think it was called Change Makers, and they asked for I think twelve to sixteen year olds to come and work with them on some campaigns. So hopefully, busting that that menstruation taboo at a young age as well. And that's a quite a difficult time. What your body's going through. So they are looking to make change, and I really, just really appreciate brands that are doing. It. Yeah, it's amazing to be working with these brands and these people. And I feel like you know, going back to again the sort of the empowerment of it all. Do you feel like do you have people kind of who you interact with and talk to who say, you know, thank you for doing this. This is such an inspiring and helpful thing that you're doing. Yeah, that's been the most surprising thing, has been the really loveliest thing actually. So the the femtech sphere is incredibly kind and incredibly helpful. It's there doesn't appear to be much of a sense of competitive behaviour there. I think we're all, you know, we want change and we're all kind of walking in the same direction. So lots of industry feedback has been really good. And even down to T, who I was speaking about earlier, who's designed the, the vibrator necklace. Which is really stylish, by the way. It's super stylish. Really T nice. Is, she's incredible. She's an incredible industrial designer. But the first bit of press that we got was with Wallpaper magazine, so a typically, you know, design-focused magazine. Great feature. It was really incredible. But the Crave Vespa, the vibrating necklace, was a feature within the feature. So I sent it straight to T for her to get hold of it. And the feedback, she said, as an industrial designer, she's been trying to get into that publication with her brand for about like eight to ten years. And she hadn't kind of managed, but it was our taking of her product, the way that we created direct the brand and then re kind of repurposing the designs and um, that she that she really really loves and then it's always fantastic telling people I go to lots of networking events there's so much power in networking and in having your team of other female founders that are with you and that we're all kind of cheerleading for each other and when I go to networking events and tell people what I do and what I'm doing with ILO, how they open up and speak about their sexuality or speak about their experiences and speak about their pleasure it's really phenomenal if you can get people in a safe space. I was at a retreat this weekend and we were kind of working on a certain kind of task within this retreat. And then when it came to the 
the sex and the pleasure questions is when everybody just cleared the table and went, right, let's talk about this now. And it's <laughs> such it's such a nice space to be in. So building the ILO community and building these safe spaces to have these conversations. I'm in talks with some companies at the moment to be able to hold the space um, yeah. and to create that safe space. But the way I want to design it is that there's another activity going on in the room at the same time. Because I think to drag people into one space and say, right, feel comfortable now, have these conversations yeah. now, feel comfortable. I don't think that's that realistic. Be so. open, be open. Yeah, yeah. And it just, you know, it can be a really hard topic for people to speak about. Oh my God, so. it's so difficult. I yeah. feel like when I was at school, sex education involved an all-female space where the female teachers would talk to us about our periods and sex in the same space. Yeah. Which felt wrong in the sense that, like, those two things should have been tackled differently and yeah. separately. But also they... Sex was talked about in a sense of being, like, boys are going to have sex with you. You have to wear a condom, otherwise yeah. you're going to get pregnant. Based, yeah. They didn't talk a huge amount about STIs. It was more about pregnancy. Yeah. And it was more about the fact that men are going to want to do this to you. Yeah. Rather than you're going to also want to have sex with people. Yeah, yeah. And... Nothing was talked about with masturbation. No. Absolutely nothing. No. And I hope that's changing now. I mean, I have no idea what's going on in schools at the moment. Yeah, it's the RSE, the Relationship Sex Education, that bill or that, I think it is slightly different. But I think there's a worry that speaking about pleasure will make young people sexual. More promiscuous. Um, more, yeah, perhaps more promiscuous. Yeah, it's. I think there's change, but it's probably not. I, I don't know how far that would. Yeah. How far that goes now. I think children are taught about consent. A friend of mine that's a primary. That's school, a good start. Yeah, my friend. <laughs> my friend of mine that's a, that's a primary school teacher. There are certain ways that they talk about touch and kind of unwanted touch, and yeah, that's something that I think is spoken about from a young age. But yeah, I think it's. I think it's quite. And difficult. there's just such a taboo, particularly around. I mean, it's kind of expected and it's an accepted part of society that boys masturbate a lot during teenage mm, years yeah. it's kind of it's, it's talked a bit about, of a sort of gag yeah it's a it's gag like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's and joked it's about the, the balls dropping and the facial hair and stuff like that yeah. yeah and it makes me think of american pie and loads of films during yeah. that time when i was a teen when it yeah. was you know it was a real laughing point that boys cannot stop masturbating yeah it was almost like if girls do, that they are maybe kind of slutty. Dirty harlot, yeah. Yeah, they've got like an insatiable yeah, sexual appetite yeah. and they're going to shag around. And yeah. I mean, it's such an old trope, which obviously we'll all be familiar with in terms of it being like if men would sleep with a lot of women, it was like he's a stud, yeah. he's irresistible. High fives. Yeah. High fives. Whereas women, it would be very much like she's got no dignity, she's yeah, got no shame, no yeah. grace. She doesn't respect her body. Yeah. That was the main thing, I think. And it's about this idea of not respecting your body. And I wonder if there's a connection with going back to that conversation we just had about invasive procedures, vaginal procedures, where your mm. legs are up in stirrups mm. and you've got a complete stranger mm. with metal medical tools yeah. sometimes going and, you know, looking at sort of cervical smears and SDI checks and stuff. It's really invasive. And I wonder if that's connected in the sense that with women or people who receive penetration is more invasive. So therefore, maybe you're giving more yeah. of yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like there's something in that sometimes where it's like, that makes it more of a kind of yeah. in society it's like yeah. it should be protected because someone's going inside you yeah there, yeah there is I was speaking to somebody about that the weekend actually yeah I think there is that and this being a vessel for the child and all of that there is yeah there's yeah there is something that's a much deeper conversation <laughs> but yeah it's just the double standards and the language and the behavior and it's still evident on things like reality television and you know definitely in the media even the way that some rapes are reported and the language that's used 
used in some of the closing statements and convictions and things. Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah. They always talk about what the woman was wearing. Yeah, wearing, drinking, doing, oh, out after dark and it... You know this assumption that yeah, you're kind of yeah, asking well, don't, for. Yeah, it. don't walk down. What were you doing walking down a dark street? Well, what was that person doing raping? That, that yeah. it's always that, and the double standards. It's utterly infuriating. The point is, is that women should be able to it, hypothetically walk around naked at whatever hour of the day yeah. and be safe. Yeah. And they're not, and no. they do their best to probably try and stay safe. Yeah. But the fact that they are approached by or assaulted or raped by men who are out and about, it's got nothing to do with how short their skirt is or yeah, yeah. how much they've yeah. had to drink or what time of day it is. And the fact that that's still coming up in court cases. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, yeah. what she was wearing and how yeah. much she, how much she consumed. Yeah. I mean, obviously, how much she consumed probably comes into it because it's even more of a sort of taking advantage yeah. situation. But the, yeah. what she's wearing, I just think, yeah. is completely by the by. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I think they can you can be asked about your past, your sexual history, and really, things. yeah, even now. Really, yeah, I think so. It's really dirty. The tactics are really oh dirty, and how you behave on the stand and stuff. It is really. Really I guess awful. they're trying to work out as well if you're lying. So they're probably asking quite incriminating questions. Yeah, there's that that seems to be a really early assumption. Well, you're just trying it's a false accusation mm. or you're trying to do this to you're trying to ruin this person's life. It's, yeah, it's yeah. awful. Yeah, it's a huge conversation. I feel like if a woman comes forward and says, This has happened to me, she doesn't want to be then thinking they're not gonna believe me mm. or they're gonna put me on trial and they're gonna try and, you know, question you to the mm. point where you're being yeah. made to feel like yeah, you're lying. Interrogation. Interrogation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I just feel like that whole kind of environment and atmosphere around it makes it really difficult for women to come forward and yeah. be like, look, this happened. And, yeah. you know, maybe I was wearing a yeah. short skirt and I was out at three in the morning. Yeah, it's awful. But it, the, yeah, the way the, the media, media reporting and the assumption that women were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. And therefore, that's why this thing happened and not looking at the statistics of crime or looking at the gender of the perpetrator nine times out of ten. Yeah, it's... And yeah, going back again just to masturbation and teenagers and sex ed, is that an area you could ever see yourself kind of going into in terms of talking and being involved in sex ed or those conversations about masturbation for teenage girls or young girls, I feel like could there be quite is, important. There is, there's an idea that I had right from the beginning, if I got some funding, I might be able to go through with it. But I would like to perhaps make ILO for a younger, make little sister brand of ILO that's for a younger consumer that parents would feel comfortable having those conversations with. I guess it depends on the household, but having those conversations and yeah, agency and ownership of the body. If, something I'd like to do if I that's had amazing yeah, the time and space would be yeah and essentially I mean parents will either be really in, against that yeah or think it's a fantastic idea yeah. yeah but it's funny in that every young boy or girl will sort of explore their body and understand what's going on in the sense of like oh that feels good that doesn't mm, feel good mm-hmm. so it's going to happen anyway yeah. isn't it so in yeah. a sense it could be like this is a way of doing it that's kind of you know you're taking a bit more control and ownership there's an open conversation about it yeah. they're reminded that it's completely normal that their body shouldn't be shamed yeah. they shouldn't feel shame about their body yeah. I feel like that would be a fantastic thing a little sister mm. to Ilo a sister to Ilo yeah 
Thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you. And it's really wonderful to hear about ILO, how you set it up and your experience as a woman and your experiences with endometriosis and as an entrepreneur and a businesswoman. I'm really excited to see what you do in the future. Thank you so much for coming on Bodies in the Post. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bodies in the Post with Gemma Sawyer from ILO. For more episodes that discuss bodies and technology, please follow the show to listen to previous episodes and be up to date with the new ones coming over the next few weeks and months.